0: This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Well, good morning. I think we'll go ahead and get started and reward those that uh, come on time. I'm sure there'll be others coming over the next few minutes, but uh, I want to start quickly so I can leave time at the end for questions, because I enjoy the interaction, finding out what people are thinking, and really want to know about. So uh, let's, uh, let's get started, I'm Nicholas Miller from Andrews University, I teach uh, at the Seventh Day Adventist Seminary, I've been in the church history department there for about six years now, where I um, use both, I have a law degree and practiced as a lawyer for a number of years, and had a strong interest in religious liberty. Andrews University wanted to open up a church state study center, and so they lured me there with a promise of sponsoring me for a PhD. in church history, which I always wanted to get. And so I went and studied the roots of American religious liberty uh, arising out of the Protestant Reformation. And so uh, that's really my area of specialty, and this presentation and the next one are going to deal with these church-state questions, religious liberty questions, and prophetic questions about um, last-day events and religious liberty. And so I enjoy these topics especially, and uh, I hope you do as well. Uh, But before I begin, let's uh, bow our heads for a word of prayer and invite the Lord and the Holy Spirit to be with us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these meetings and we thank you for the enthusiastic and zealous young people that have come from all over the country. And it's such a blessing to see even my own children here involved in the meetings and involved in the outreach yesterday and uh, we're grateful for this great peer group that provides the positive pressure uh, to help kids see that it's fun and cool and exciting to do work for Jesus and to help people be ready for his soon coming. I pray for your spirit with us today as we look at some important issues, both from the past and through prophecy in the future, as to how we can be wise and discerning uh, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, when we know all sorts of deceptions and deceits will come along and we need to stay close to you and to your word and to the community of Christ as we seek to uh, keep a firm hold of the truth. We pray these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've reached the topic of religious liberty and public morality. We've come through. Um, Some of you, I hope, have heard these earlier presentations because they tend to build on each other, going through Sola Scriptura, the great controversy theme, the moral government of God, which is very directly connected to questions of religious liberty. The character of God is at the core of Adventism. And I know there's a number of uh, seminar presenters here that are talking about theodicy and apologetics and the character of God. And I think that's so appropriate because as Adventists, that is at the core of our theology. It's not just about being saved. It's about understanding who God is, and then as a Christian, showing that understanding, the goodness and graciousness of God's character to the world that we live in. And that's really why God hasn't come. It's not just about saving people. It's about showing the truths of God's government to the universe so that our salvation can be accomplished for all time, and the universe itself can be put on a safe and eternal footing. So... We'll talk about religious liberty and morality generally now, the backgrounds of religious liberty and the Protestant Reformation and how that's affected our country today. And then the next presentation, immediately following, we're going to talk about Sunday laws. Um, and then uh, the, this afternoon, I'll look at the last generation theology. If you have questions, feel free to email me at this email address, nicholas at as well as send a text message, if you like, to 574-274-5207, and I will try to get to those questions at the end of uh, my presentation. Also, there have been a number of people who've asked about resources, about these PowerPoints that I'm showing. I move through them fairly rapidly at times, so it may be hard to write everything down, but if you would like the PowerPoints, send me an email uh, specifying which ones you would like And I will send them to you. And uh, so you can have those PowerPoints. You don't have to write everything down. Just to recap, the key text, uh, theme text that I've chosen for the week is this one from Hebrews 12.1. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfector of our faith. This cloud of witnesses are the faithful of the past, the faithful of all the ages. They're not alive, and yet Paul exhorts us to consider them, to listen to them, not because they're going to tell us what's true, that they are authorities for us, but they are witnesses to the workings of Jesus Christ. They're witnesses to the truths of the Bible, and in dialoguing with them, we can step outside our own limitations, our own time and place, And this is so important. I was just, uh, there's a Barnes & Noble not far away, and I'm a book lover, and of course I have to visit every bookstore that I'm near for any period of time, and I came across a fascinating little book that said, You're Not So Smart, which is the kind of book that my wife says that I need to read. You're Not So Smart, just to sort of remind me. And it was a fascinating little popular expose of a lot of sociological, psychological studies, making the point that while we think we're reasonable and rational and make decisions based on reason, that much of the time our subconscious is operating, uh, that we make decisions based on emotion, we make decisions based on visual and verbal cues that we're not even aware of. Uh, Some very profound studies about um, people being shown objects and then being given tests and They will give different answers on the test depending on what objects they've been shown. And there seems to be no connection between the two and they think they're doing this rationally. But you come away with an understanding that we need each other. A Christian community needs the Holy Spirit and each other to make themselves aware of your own subconscious and unconscious biases. We also need to act individually. We can't overemphasize this community theme. The, the community needs the individual. And another group of tests showed that if you're on your own, you're more likely, if you're in a room, if somebody calls for help or if something strange happens, smoke starts rising, if you're on your own, you're very likely to respond to it. If there's two or three of you, you're somewhat less likely to respond to it. And if there's a large crowd, you're almost likely not to respond to it. Uh, There's like this group apathy that happens. It's like, well, this is somebody else's problem. Somebody else will help. And the point of the article is you have to learn to act on your own and assert yourself as well. So we need each other, but we also need uh, to think for ourselves and be convicted of truth for ourselves. Anyway... We're moving on. The one other thing I'll mention for those that weren't here, in talking about this need for uh, studying in community, we talked about the two influences on Adventism in the 20th century especially. From the larger culture, the larger Christian community, uh, liberalism on the left... Uh, The emphasis on experience uh, over proposition, the rejection of propositional truths in the Bible. And then fundamentalism on the right, which is almost the opposite. A complete focus on orthodoxy uh, and not much attention necessarily given to experience. And that Adventism is neither one or the other, but cares about both things. It cares about truths. Uh, but it also realizes faith and the personal experience of faith is important. And in each of the topics we've looked at, we've I've generally discovered there's not just a right view and a wrong view. There's actually usually two unhealthy extremes and the and the, the the right view lies somewhere in the middle, not as a compromise, but as a balance of competing concerns. And in this area of church and state, we find that same thing. And in fact, I'm going to start out by talking about the dilemmas of moral legislation. As Adventists, we've tended to focus on the separation of church and state, that this is important because we believe that in the future there will be Sunday laws and that the church, uh, the larger Christian church will attempt to use the state to coerce in matters of conscience regarding days of worship. So this has made us very sensitive to the point where often some among us will say, you just can't legislate morality. Um, And this uh, comes in two different versions. It's funny, in this area, the liberals and the fundamentalists sometimes kind of overlap because you'll get the liberals who say, well, look, all morality is personal and relative. Uh, You know, what's true and good for you is fine for you, but don't impose it on me. And uh, therefore you know, you can believe what you want, but let's not enforce it on others. We should only legislate against directly measurable, usually physical harms. And so the liberals will uh, say, um, you know, pornography, abortion, same-sex marriage, these things, uh, we should allow all this because it's trying to impose our morality on others. Well, funnily enough, the fundamentalists will have a somewhat different view. They'll say, yeah, there is a right and the wrong. The Bible prohibits certain sexual practices, gay marriage, pornography, elective abortion, and racial discrimination, and we shouldn't do these things in the church. But as these are moral decisions, and there's a separation of church and state, uh, that it would violate the separation of church and state and improperly involve the church in politics to get involved politically on these questions. And so, ironically, while they have different personal philosophies, the kind of liberals and fundamentalists often both press for non-involvement on these political questions. Now, these, both these have had an influence on Adventism, both of these positions, but they are a product of 20th century influences and um, weren't found in our early Adventist pioneers. And the clearest example... Um, is Ellen White and her involvement in temperance reform and prohibition of alcohol. Ellen White understood clearly the importance of the separation of church and state. She talks about it in The Great Controversy. And yet she was on the front lines. She spoke to her largest audiences um, in her life, to non-Adventist groups, up to 50,000 people, talking about the importance of both temperance reform, not drinking alcohol, choosing yourself not to drink it, but also arguing that people should go out and vote for laws and vote for political candidates who would pass laws outlawing alcohol. She did the same thing in the area of racial discrimination and slavery, that we should oppose unjust laws that required the return of slaves to slave masters, and we should work for the abolition of slavery, and we should oppose discrimination as well. Now, um, the... Adventist pioneers then understood that while the separation of church and state was important institutionally, and the state should stay out of spiritual matters, that there were moral concerns that the state should be involved with. And when I was practicing law, I realized that there was some confusion in this area, and I wanted to more fully understand the Protestant roots of both America and the Adventist church. And so the Lord opened the doors for me to go and do some further study. I left the full-time practice of law and uh, went to a graduate school where I studied American religious and legal history. And I looked at the foundations of our First Amendment and the Constitution. And I wanted to understand this balance between liberty and morality and how the reformers thought about it and how our founders thought about it. And so I went and did this. And now I'm gonna do a little uh, promo here, I suppose, but it's all for your uh, best good and interest. Um, the products of my study, I was, I was inspired by the book, The Great Controversy, because in The Great Controversy, I'm sure most of you have read it, and you probably remember the chapter, Protest of the Princes, where uh, it didn't involve Luther, but princes influenced by Luther come and protest and say, in matters of conscience, the majority will have no say. Now, um, many people, most historians for the last 100 years, say that Protestantism, the Protestant reformers, uh, they didn't want to separate church and state. They were all about, they talk about Geneva and, and, and Calvin and, and, and the Puritans and imposing their mor- morality through the state. So I went to see, well, you know, Ellen White makes these claims about religious liberty starting at this point. And so I did a lot of research and studied with some Protestant historian professors and through the grace of God and through hard work, was able to trace a chain of, of thinkers from Martin Luther down through, uh, the, through uh, the Netherlands and into England and John Milton and John Locke to our founders, showing that indeed, while not all Protestants supported the separation of church and state, there was always a line of Protestant, dissenting Protestant thinkers that did, based on some doctrines and points of view of Martin Luther, and it was tracing that chain down that showed that the separation of church and state really is a Christian Protestant idea, as and isn't something imposed by the secularists. But in doing this study, I also became aware that the separation of church and state didn't mean the complete separation of morality in the state, and that our pioneers had understood a balanced and careful view that separated church and state, but not morality. So if you're interested in the larger story, here is the cover of my book that I wrote, The Religious Roots of the First Amendment, and it goes into a great deal of uh, of detail on this. Um, And it uh, it just came out last summer, and I was blessed to have it published by the Oxford University Press. And uh, that was a real blessing from the Lord, because essentially it's a book vindicating the arguments of the Great Controversy. Um, and it's been accepted as a, um, a, a reputable and um, sound work by a secular uh, and well-known academic press. So it's going to enable me to talk about these things and to talk about Ellen White's views to a larger audience, and I praise the Lord for that. Um, the what? I don't have it here, but it's, um, it's easily uh, obtainable on Amazon, Uh, You can order them there. So let's talk about the Protestantism and the roots of the separation of church and state. I mentioned the protest of the princes, uh, the second diet of Speyer in 1529. Uh, If you have an interest in that, review the Great Controversy chapter. The princes were told by the Emperor and by the majority of the Diet that they could have religious freedom themselves, but that they couldn't spread it any further. That they and their people within their provinces could worship as Protestants, uh, but they couldn't spread this evangelical message more broadly. But these princes weren't content with their own religious freedom. They understood they had a mandate from Christ to take this gospel message to all the world. And they said, no, our religious convictions require us to share the truths of the gospel, of justification by faith, of righteousness and we cannot be bound by what the majority or the emperor says on this point. And in words that ring down to our day, they say this, Protestantism sets uh, in matters of conscience, in matters of conscience, the majority shall have no say. And this became the principle of Protestantism. Uh, As one historian put it, Protestantism sets the power of conscience above the magistrate and the authority of the word of God above the visible church. Now, if you think about this, this is really the roots of the idea behind our Bill of Rights. In in matters of conscience, the majority shall have no say. Now, what is a democracy? Rule by the majority. So, in most things, we make decisions based on what the majority has to say. And yet, there is this small area of conscience of fundamental freedoms where we say we have a Bill of Rights, and if what the majority does infringes on the Bill of Rights, one person with one federal judge can actually overturn what the majority has said on that point. This is a direct reflection of this underlying philosophy which is expressed here at the Diet of Speyer. Now Ellen White sets this well out, but she doesn't tell the whole story at the Diet of Speyer. Not because she's covering it up; she's telling a different story for a different reason. And there's some complexities to this, Um, but it's a story that historians know about, and that you should know about when you're talking about religious freedom and the Protestant Reformation. Because at Speyer, these princes who stood so wonderfully for the freedom of conscience for themselves joined with the Catholics and the other uh, the, uh, the Catholic princes and the Emperor in condemning the Anabaptists who were a small part of the Radical Reformation, who believed in not baptizing infants, but in having a community of baptized adults, who believed in a full separation of church and state. And this group at the Diet of Speyer condemned the Anabaptists, said they should be punished, whipped, put in jail, and even if they were persisted in it and would not change their ways, that they could be executed. The Lutheran princes joined in this, and subsequently thousands of Anabaptists were killed by both Catholics and by Protestants all across Europe. It's a very sad page in the history of religious toleration. So why did this happen? What is the conundrum here? Um, Were the princes just speaking for themselves and protecting their own consciences, or did they really believe in a principle of religious freedom? Well, the answer to the story helps us understand this question about the balance between liberty and morality. Uh, But to understand the story, we have to understand a little bit about Luther and the world that he was born into. Because while Luther wasn't at Spire, he was the greatest theological influence on those that were at Spire. Now, before Luther... Church and state, it's not fair to say they were one and the same thing. There was a kind of separation of church and state, um, but they worked very closely together. The Pope was not an emperor, and the emperor could not be, for the most part, a church leader. Uh, Priests weren't supposed to handle the sword, although occasionally some of them did. Uh, But the church was meant to decide who the heretics were, and then the church would hand the heretics over to the civil state to be punished. So it was a kind of separation, but a close cooperation, and the two worked together. One historian, Catholic historian, has said this, the identification of the church with the whole of organized society is the fundamental feature which distinguishes the Middle Ages from earlier and later periods of history, so that everyone that was a member of the church was also a member of the state and vice versa. If you were a citizen of the state, you were a member of the church. And this was important because the theory behind the state enforcing religious laws of the church was that everyone was a member of both institutions. And that's why infant baptism was so important. Because if everyone is baptized as a baby, then not only do you have the problem of original sin being washed away, but you also have now everybody in the state is a member of the church, and you have this united. Community of church and state, and the church and state can combine uh, to enforce spiritual rules and laws. So, church and state combine to oversee this relationship, and you can see in some ways why the Anabaptists were viewed as so radical. Because they said, We're not going to baptize babies. And so, suddenly, you have a whole generation, a whole population that is outside of this church state covenant. And you lose the, the sort of the legal basis, the, the, the philosophy of being able to enforce the relationship. So, to help understand this medieval worldview and what Luther does to it, I've created a little chart. And it looks a little algebraic to begin with, but it's actually very simple. Um, there's a T at the top, which stands for truth or God right? Everyone believes in God and, and the truth about God and the universe and spiritual truth and political truth and all truth. And that truth, though, is mediated down to the two major institutions of society, church and state. See, I have a C and an S. And I've capitalized the C because the belief was is that the church is the most important part of this relationship. Um, when um, uh, the emperors were crowned, They would often be crowned by the Pope, the famous crowning of Charlemagne, uh, by the Pope of the day. And so the Pope would obviously argue that he was over, the spiritual realm was over the temporal realm. And you can see church and state are two institutions, but they cooperate. There's a line connecting them. And what they do is they mediate truths, spiritual truths, um, political truths, to the individual, and I've put the individual in lowercase because the individual is just not very important. You only learn about your duties and responsibilities from those above you. And it's more important, in fact, as to what part of society you belong to. You are a tailor or a farmer, you're part of a guild. And so, in this view, there's no rights, there's only privileges. To speak of a right of conscience is almost impossible. What does conscience mean? means you have an interpretation of the Bible that somehow differs from the views of the Bible of those around you and those above you. Well, if those above you are telling you what the Bible says and means, how can you differ with them? If God is speaking through the priest or through the bishop, uh, you don't have any rights. There's a divine right of kings and there's a papal right of uh, spiritual and biblical interpretation. And so... The king can give you toleration, he can give you some space, but it's only a privilege from the king that he may or may not grant you. It's not a right that you can claim. Um, There's church-state cooperation with the the church as a senior partner. Now, Martin Luther came along and challenged this whole system, and he did it with primarily one main doctrine— And it's one you're familiar with, and we should be more familiar with as Adventists. It was called the Priesthood of Believers. Now, you've heard of Sola Scriptura, and that is a central doctrine of the Reformation. And Sola Scriptura was really connected with the idea of the Priesthood of Believers because it meant that the authority lay in Scripture, not in people around you interpreting Scripture. But if the authority was in Scripture, you have to read it, right? And you have to interpret it for yourself, And you, in a sense, become a priest, uh, that God teaches you truth, the Holy Spirit teaches you truth through Scripture. Now, we've talked about the importance of community, but you still have to believe the truth for yourself. And this priesthood of believers wasn't just about praying directly to God, which is part of it, but it's also about receiving truth from the Bible for God. And this is the way that Luther put it. He said, "To call popes, bishops, priests, monks and nuns the religious class, but princes, lords, artisans and farm workers the secular class is a specious device invented by certain time servers. For all Christians, whatsoever really and truly belong to the religious class, and there is no difference among them, except insofar as they do different work. Now this is a very important point from the Reformation. There was a belief that if you were part of the, you know, priests or nuns or that you had this spiritually exalted status and you could understand God better, you were closer to God, you had a greater right to interpret the Bible. But Luther is saying, no, you may have a different office, but there's not a spiritual superiority. And this is something that, that we always have to remind ourselves on, even in our own church. We're having these discussions over ordination now, right? You know, should it be um, to men and women or both? And, But apart from that question, we can have a too-exalted view of what ordination is if we think it makes a certain class of people exalted and spiritually superior. There's a group of people who have special gifts, have committed their lives to a certain cause. We should all commit our lives to that cause, though, and we all have ministries. Um, There is a subgroup that have an office of pastor. They have a special gift for interpreting the Bible, uh, and, 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 and speaking the Bible to us. Usually here in North America, we don't have a problem with overly exalting our pastors. In fact, sometimes I think we should have more respect for them. But especially in third world countries, there's a sense, you know, whether they come from a Catholic background, that um, the pastor has a special divine insight into everything and we can create two tiers of believers. And this is what the reformers were speaking against. We all have obligations to to study the Bible. And so this is what uh, the the conclusion that Luther draws from this. The fact is that our baptism consecrates us all without exception and makes us all priests. As St. Peter says, you are a royal priesthood and a realm of priests. In Revelation, thou hast made us priests and kings by your blood. And because of this, Luther says... We, as priests, can read and interpret the Bible and we can challenge the scriptural interpretation and understanding of the Pope himself. If he is not faithful to the Bible, we can challenge, on the basis of the Bible, uh, the beliefs that he hands down. Luther also had a view of secular authority. He said, secular authority is ordained by God, but only to oversee secular matters. It's not appropriate, he said, for the king to decide what religious books are good, for instance. He said this, Worldly government has laws which extend no farther than to life and property, and what is external upon earth. For over the soul, God can and will let no one rule but himself. Therefore, where temporal power presumes to prescribe laws for the soul it encroaches upon God's government and only misleads and destroys the souls. So he sees clearly in his early writings the importance of separating the temporal and the spiritual realms. And so he undermines this model. Here's the medieval model again. Sola Scriptura and the priesthood of believers inverts this bottom triangle here. And it takes that I and puts it above the church and the state, and it looks something like this. Here's Luther's Protestant revolution. You still have truth in God, Luther wasn't denying that, but now the individual has a duty to access Scripture, to pray directly himself to God, and church and state suddenly become supportive enterprises of the individual. And in fact, some historians have talked about Luther and Calvin Discovering the modern concept of the individual. No longer are people viewed as groups to be overseen by uh, their masters. Rather, the individual himself and herself become important. And now you have the philosophy in place that the offices in the church are there to serve the church as a group. That the church lies in the congregation, not in the uh, leaders that rule it. The individual has access directly through scripture and reason. The church and state support the citizen. I think you have here the clearest explanation for why over a period of three or four hundred years, Europe and America changed from a model of a divine right of kings where uh, the citizens exist for the king and the king, Louis Fourteenth and, and the Sixteenth, say, I am the state, right? What does Lincoln say? He says, American government is a government of the people and by the people and for the people. And if the single best explanation for that shift, I believe, is the shift in the minds of the people from the medieval model to Luther's Protestant model, where the individual is directly subject to God. So. Spiritual truths from the Bible about duties to and worship of God are personal to each individual and not to be controlled by the state. But, and here's an important point, that natural law truths, and uh, those of you who were here earlier, truths not from the Bible and that are just spiritual truths that you wouldn't understand unless you had the Bible, but truths about right and wrong that you can understand from the natural world, from moral philosophy can still serve as the basis of law and society. And here we come back to the story of the Anabaptists again. Um, after Martin Luther wrote these uh, truths about separating church and state and about the moral and the, the, temporal, the spiritual and the temporal spheres, something happened. There was a peasants' war, 1524 and twenty-five. those of you who know your history. Some peasants took Martin Luther's teachings and misused them for temporal purposes, says, oh, all people are free, all people are equal, therefore we don't have to pay our taxes, we can revolt against our masters. And they took up swords and cudgels, and hundreds of thousands of them began attacking uh, the overlords, who were indeed oppressive. And early on, Luther tried his hand at a little social justice and sort of wrote letters rebuking both sides, saying the masters were oppressive, uh, but you peasants need to be respectful, but at some point, things got out of hand, and the, and the peasants went on a rampage, and Luther realized that his spiritual revolution was going to be overcome by this civil disorder and this rebellion that, that, that he didn't support, and he and in, became infamous for encouraging the princes to smite and strike and slay these horrible, revolting peasants, um, and that did happen. And it was after that point also that Luther backed away a bit from some of his stronger statements about the separation of church and state and the spiritual and temporal sphere because he saw, he feared, that perhaps this would create too much of a sense of freedom. And so he backed away from some of these claims. But they were kept alive by others, and that's what I I trace in, in, in my book, But something that became unfortunate for the Anabaptists is they became associated, because some of the Anabaptist leaders had come out of the Peasants' Revolt. And they were associated with this, we call it seditious heresy. See, heresy is one thing if it's just spiritual. But if your heresy says... There is no king but Jesus, and therefore we will not recognize uh, the president, and we won't pay our taxes, and in fact we're going to keep all uh, federal troops out of our area of the country. You've now moved from making spiritual arguments to making temporal, civil, rebellion kinds of arguments, and the state has a legitimate role in putting down rebellion. And so, some people began to associate the Anabaptists with this earlier movement. Now, the two were separate movements, and in fact, the Anabaptists themselves were pacifists. They wouldn't take up the sword. But many people just viewed this as a subterfuge, as a, as a clever disguise, and they focused on two things. I mentioned earlier the baptism, the refusal to baptize infants, and then this earlier violence that happened, and the the Anabaptists were viewed as something akin to anarchists and maybe violent as well. And so uh, Luther had this confusion in his view of the Anabaptists, and others did, and this was in part the reason that they were willing to uh, persecute them. Now, some Protestants, Calvin especially, was willing to persecute them whether they were seditious or civilly rebellious or not. Calvin believed in continuing to use the sword against heresy. So there was a division in the reformers on this. Um, Nevertheless, this understanding of Luther helps you see this clear distinction between civil and religious morality. Religious morality has to do, if you will, with the first four commands of the law, praying and worshipping in ways that isn't going to impact or affect the civil state in any meaningful way. Whereas if your morality involves things that do impact others, the community, your neighbors, the second table of the law, then um, Luther would have said, yes, the state has an interest there. Now, there's a third kind of view of church and state that was in existence in the 17th and 18th century but didn't become popular until the 20th century. But it's the one that we're most familiar with because we've lived in it. Uh, for uh, most of our lives. And that was the rise of the skeptical enlightenment. And I've um, illustrated this by using, continuing to lo- use my little diagram, and I've put at the top, rather than capital T truths, a l- bunch of little t truths, right? What's true for you is true for you, and, and everyone has their own truth, and we can't be sure uh, what kind of truth is true. All truth is personal. Now, this view tended to view the individual as important still, because the government couldn't tell you what was true for you, either morally or spiritually. You had to find it for yourself, Um, and the church and state were still servants of the individual. And there is a separation between church and state, but unlike in the, and I I didn't talk about that so much, let's go back to the Protestant model, church and state are both capitalized because in Luther's view of the two kingdoms, both kingdoms are equally important. They just have different jurisdictions, right? They should respect each other. They should, um, uh, the the, the state should make sure the church could function. The church can be supportive of the state. But there's a separation between them to allow them both to operate fully in their own realm. But there's a, a respect and equality between them. But under this new view, the state is considered to be most important and and the church is sidelined because if you believe that that, uh, toleration is based on not knowing absolute truths, what kind of people threaten that toleration? Anybody who believes they know absolute truth, right? And who knows absolute truth or who claims they do? Religious people, conservative religious people. And so the word fundamentalist becomes a bad word because if fundamentalists and if religious people uh, get a hold or get involved in government, then the feeling is is they're going to impose their religious views on others. So you separate church and state not out of a respect for the separate religious sphere, but out of a fear of religion and religious people, and you want to keep them sidelined and marginalized and privatized. And much of the separation of church and state that has happened in, say, the last 50 years in America has begun to reflect this kind of view of religion. And groups like the ACLU or People for the American Way tend to view separation of church and state in that light. And it has given separation of church and state a bad name in the eyes of many American Christians. And so it's hard for them to view separation of church and state as a positive thing. Uh, Morality and state are separate because all truths, spiritual and moral, are subjective. Now I've shown you these three diagrams, and now you can understand the history of the West and the history of America in one little scheme here. You have on the very left the medieval view of the world uh, from the 5 to the 1500s, but it was also the way that the Puritans viewed the world, who first settled New England. See, America has all three heritages, and a lot of Christians today want to focus on the Puritans as being the explanation for America, and we have a Christian nation. Well, the Puritans believed that, but they weren't responsible for framing our Constitution. It was the middle view, the Protestant view, belief in truth and God, but the importance of the individual leading to a healthy separation of church and state, that John Locke and Roger Williams believed in, and really framed our Constitution. But come the 1870s and the early 1900s, and America became more liberal in the sense of rejecting notions of moral philosophy and natural law, the idea that you could know a morality in a meaningful way as a society, and we became... Uh, focused on this model here on the right. And most of our elite institutions, the media and Hollywood, uh, have functioned on this model for many decades. Now, I've put that this model continues to about 9-11. And the reason that continues to 9-11 is because on 9-11, most Americans said, this model is crazy. There is a right and there is a wrong, Islam and these fanatic extremists are evil, they're terrorists, and we are going to go to war on them, and we are going to do away with this silly relativist liberalism that the elites in America have set up, and we're going to do away with this separation of church and state that they've set up. The problem is, is this middle model has been largely obscured and lost sight of, the healthy separation of church and state. And there is a press or a move to return to the model on the far left side. And I can tell you the moment when I first recognized this. Um, Shortly after 9-11 happened, a number of people, 1,500 people, were taken to jail and held for questioning for several months without access to lawyers or to their families. Um, Other things happened, uh, searches without warrants and... You know, the government was reacting, as the government should react in some ways, though it wasn't clear if they had to do all the things they had to do. And so Attorney General um, uh, was um, John Ashcroft at the time, and he was called to Capitol Hill, to Congress, to give a report about what the government had done. And under our constitutional scheme, that's appropriate, because Congress represents us most directly, right? There are elected officials, they speak for us. The administrative, the the executive branch is carrying out the laws and should answer to Congress, which is the most direct representation of the people. Well, uh, John Ashcroft went to Congress, and I remember watching the hearings, and he could have said, we were anticipating that he would say, well, look, there was this attack, we were concerned about security, uh, the safety of the Americans, we therefore had to balance rights and and security, and, and we think we've made the right decisions here. Well, he didn't do that. He didn't start off that way at all. Rather, he began by making a speech where he said, um, you have to trust us, we are Americans, and shame on anyone here who's going to call into question Uh, the motives or the way that we have struck the balance between peace and security. If you question us on these issues and raise, raise concerns about lost liberties, you are aiding and abetting the terrorists in their work here in America. Now, if you think about that for a moment, if you aid and abet a terrorist, what are you? Under the laws, you're a terrorist, right? So suddenly, questioning government leadership about whether we've struck this balance right is suddenly makes you a terrorist. Now, which model of government does that kind of reaction fall under? It doesn't fall under that middle one where the government is the servant of the people and it's not that they may not have the right to do what they did, but they need to provide an explanation. That represents a shift back to the model on the left where the church and the state, the state is overseeing our concerns and uh, we don't have rights, we have privileges and we just need to trust the state. And unfortunately, fortunately John Ashcroft himself later on showed some level of conscience and humility and actually opposed some of the more extreme measures that the Bush administration took in the war on terror and became something of a hero in, in defending some of our liberties Uh, But the larger story isn't so good. It's been remarkable as a constitutional lawyer trained with a special focus on constitutional rights, it's been especially alarming to see so many of our constitutional protections dissolve and go away. Habeas corpus, the ability for government to hold even American citizens for unlimited periods of time. Did you know legislation has just passed to reconfirm that? Now, it may be challenged in the, uh, in the courts, but that's unclear. But there's no great outcry from Americans. And why is there no great outcry? Because emotionally and instinctively, we are comfortable with more and more with that model on the left. We want to be kept safe. And we see the threat, not from ourselves, but from an unpopular group, Islamic, Arabists, and if they're not terrorists, they probably know some terrorists or they're going to become terrorists. Or... But what we forget is the power of precedent. People have been locked up at Guantanamo Bay for 10 years. Most of them still haven't had a trial. We're not saying very much because they're probably terrorists, right? But what we overlook is the power of precedent. The way the government is treating those people is affecting the laws that protect you. And do we believe that those laws will be used to target other unpopular minority groups in the future? Now, we shouldn't just care about it for that. We should care about it because justice is being violated for some people somewhere. But even from a self-centered, somewhat egocentric perspective, we should care about it because there are rights too. And those rights have been significantly diminished and cut back on over the last ten years. Um... But it's happened on on both sides. We still have, in some ways, if you look at this chart, it explains the blue-red political divide in our country. On the uh, right side of the chart, sort of the liberal-democrat side, uh, those that support gay marriage and the legalization of marijuana and abortion uh, rights. And and on the left uh, of the chart, the right politically, of course, or wanting uh government supporting religion, wanting prayer in schools, wanting government uh sponsored religious ministries. But often overlooked is the government uh the, the, the Locke Protestant model in the middle. Now even in the church we have these same Impulses. It's hard for Adventists sometimes at election time uh, because we resonate with many of the things that the Republicans stand for. We believe in the Ten Commandments. Why would we want to take them off public buildings or out of the schools? We believe in prayer. It would be very helpful for our schools to have vouchers or, or money from, from the government. Uh, on the liberal side, we talked about this, uh, we want to separate morality and the government. But our pioneers understood things very differently, opposed slavery and segregation, supported temperance reforms, including laws absolutely prohibiting alcohol. They spoke and wrote against abortion on demand, strong defenders of the family, strong arguments against alcohol. What about marriage? We just had gay marriage pass here in Washington state. And I was speaking with the conference president, and he had passed out petitions to the pastors here. And, and, and uh, my brother-in-law passed out a petition at his church to support the legislation that would have protected traditional marriage. And I think we did the right thing. Here's a quote from Ellen White. Commenting on the French Revolution, where they changed marriage civilly. Intimately connected, she said, with these laws affecting religion was that which reduced the union of marriage the most sacred engagement which human beings can form and the permanence of which leads most strongly to the consolidation of society, to the state of a mere civil contract, of its transitory character, which any two persons might engage in and cast loose at pleasure. She's almost describing what we call no-fault divorce today, right? You can get married, you can get divorced, doesn't matter, just uh, move on with your life. But what does she say about that? she in favor of it? No. If fiends or demons had set themselves to discover a mode of most effectually destroying whatever is venerable, graceful, or permanent in domestic life, they could not have invented a more effectual plan than the degradation of marriage. So is this just about spiritual matters in the church? No. Ellen White sees this as a core makeup of the stability of society of the welfare of children, of children to be raised in homes that provide them physical security. Um, it, th- and she's actually, this is a quote from, that's in the Great Controversy, and she's quoting Walter Scott, but obviously quoting him very approvingly. Elsewhere, she has quotes where she connects these two institutions. Eden, there were two institutions in the Garden of Eden, right? Marriage and the Sabbath. And as Adventists, we've been completely focused in our view of last day events on the question of Sunday laws. The fourth commandment is going to be under attack. But if you think about it, the heart of God's law is already under attack. There's another heart commandment at the heart of God's law, the fifth commandment. They're a pair. And you notice that there are two commandments that aren't framed in terms of thou shalt not. They're the two affirmative commandments. Thou shalt Remember the Sabbath day. Thou shalt honor thy mother and thy father. And they're connected with the two institutions from Eden. Marriage and the Sabbath. They also have to do with authority. One showing God's spiritual authority and authority in all things. The other showing God's plan for authority in society. Respecting one's parents. One learns how to relate to the government by learning how to relate to one's parents. So, if there was a Sunday law on the floor of Congress... I bet you would be pretty interested and you would be hopefully politically engaged. You would be writing letters explaining your understanding of the Fourth Commandment. And yet there are laws or have been in legislatures at the state level across the country and for the most part Adventists have been relatively quiet, relatively silent. And I think that's been an oversight on our part. And I'll tell you why. Because our credibility and our um, right to speak out in the future on Sunday laws may be undermined and can depend on how we treat this other issue. There's a difference between the location of these two laws, the Fourth and Fifth Commandment. Which table is the Fourth Commandment on? And the Fifth Commandment is on... So the first table has to do with our relationships to God, and you shouldn't legislate that. But the second table has to do with our relationships with men. And all governments everywhere have legislated at least aspects of all six of the last commandments. And appropriately so. The the, the Bible itself recognizes this. If we remain silent on these issues of marriage, and then in the future when our Christian friends want to pass issues relating to days of worship and rest, and we go and speak to them, they're going to, come to, they're going to say to us, we know you Adventists, you don't care about the, spiritual, about the moral welfare and environment of our culture and our society. You're willing to let it go to hell in a handbasket. And let me tell you, this is a very important point since these shootings in Connecticut, this tragic event that happened. America is undergoing a soul-searching and Americans are realizing not only maybe we need gun control, but as they think about it more deeply, that maybe we need some laws in relation to morality that limit violence and graphic sexuality and horrible video games. And, and you know what? I think they're right. How do you train people to kill if you've ever been in the army? You, know, you, you have them undergo this exercise over and over so they become desensitized. What are these video games doing to young people, especially those with unbalanced minds or with temperance uh, that, that aren't stable? It's creating killers that have killed children, and we're not going to put up with it anymore. So as Adventists, we can't just guard our concerns about Sunday laws by saying, you just can't touch morality at all, because we will lose touch with the real needs of our society. And we need to be involved with these questions, and we'll be in a much better position if we work with our evangelical friends, like Ellen White used to do on issues of temperance reform, working on this institution from Eden. We can speak to them about the other institution from Eden. How many evangelicals want to talk to us about the Sabbath? Hardly any. But they're very open to talking about the marriage right now, right? So if we go and talk to them about that and establish some bridges and friendships, and, and then we'll be in a position to explain the difference between the two institutions and why they need to be approached differently in society. So this becomes a very, very important and critical point in our religious liberty. And I, I want to end fairly quickly here because I see if there's any questions, but uh, this same-sex marriage isn't just this, it's this important question of public morality, but it's also a religious liberty question for the church. Uh, Pastors have gone to prison, been fined in other countries for just teaching what the Bible says about homosexuality because there is gay marriage in those places. In our own country, in California, a law has passed forbidding counselors, doctors, anyone with any qualification to engage in counseling on matters of sexuality, forbidding them from counseling anyone under the age of 18 in relation to sexual orientation and and, and how to modify it or change it. And it's a gross violation of religious freedom, of freedom of association, of freedom of speech. I think it's going to be overturned by the courts. It was just recently kind of put on hold until the courts can decide it. But the point is, this isn't a live and let live movement. They are not just wanting to have the rights to equal treatment in marriage. They want to stop your schools and teachers uh, from being able to teach what the Bible says about this in your communities. If you don't speak on this, uh, you will be spoken for and uh, laws will be passed that will stop you from carrying out your religion and have been passed already. There's a number of other laws that we could be concerned with. I think we should be speaking up on behalf of the Catholics, oddly enough, and this Obama health care reform where they're forced to buy contraceptives for their employees or provide insurance that will do that we don't hold that particular stand as as adventists um, but that doesn't matter it's their conscience at stake and we should show that this is a principle by saying no the catholics position and conscience on this needs to be respective christ and the golden rule do unto others as you would have them do unto you This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.